Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 108. On today's show, we talk about tombs in Egypt, the oldest city in the Americas in Peru, beer cans, and an archaeology show mentioned on CNN. Let's dig a little deeper. All right, welcome to another episode of the Archaeology Show. I'm here with my wife, Rachel. How's it going? Pretty good, pretty good. Yeah, we're sitting here at our RV park in... Port Orange, Florida, which is near Daytona Beach, Florida, if anybody needs to reference that. And we're outside. Yes. So you may hear some sounds. There's lots of motorcycles in this RV park. There's cars. There's people walking around. There's birds. I don't know how much of that is going to get picked up. Also, there's a train about every 48 seconds that goes by. <laughs> so That's why I've heard like 10 of them today. So. I know. You might hear a portion of a train, but we'll probably mute and cut that out. Yeah, we'll, just we'll to, edit it out as... Yeah. As it happens, but... It's just so nice. We decided to sit outside. We're using the good mics, so they should be pretty good at sound cancellation. But hey, archaeology is all about being outside. So yeah, there you definitely. Go. And it's nice out here. Yeah. So I wanted to bring up first, before we start, we're going to talk about some news articles like we did last week, but I wanted to bring up something that was pretty cool first off as this plane flies overhead. <laughs> I was alerted by a friend on Facebook. They sent me a message and said, hey, congrats on the CNN shout out this morning and a link. And, you know, there's been a scam going around Facebook Messenger where somebody says, is this you? And there's a YouTube link and it's a total scam. It's like if you click on it, I don't even know what happens if you click on it, but it's you've been hacked and, and that's a thing. So I was like, are you a real person? Is this a real link? <laughs> so I didn't click on it because they didn't answer me. And then I, um, I went and found the actual article, but it's in CNN style. We'll link to it. The article is called The Dig and Five Other Cultural Recommendations If You Love Ancient Discoveries. So The Dig is something that we found out about not too long ago, and we're actually going to talk about it. It's a Netflix show coming up, and we'll talk about it when it comes out and we've had a chance to see it. Have you heard a bunch else about it? I haven't really seen a trailer or anything. I mean, I know it's a movie, and it's based on a real story, and that's basically all I know. (laughs) And it's about archaeology, so yeah, that's, that's all I know. Yeah, it says it's a historical drama starring Carrie Mulligan and Ralph Fiennes, and it should pique our interest. Well, I'm sure it will. Yeah. So it says that it retells the story of how a widow and a self-taught archaeologist unearthed an Anglo-Saxon burial ship on a private plot of land in Suffolk, UK in 1939. So that's all I'll say about it. Yeah. Just go check it out. So. Yeah, we'll definitely watch it and give a review on yeah. an upcoming episode. Yeah, hopefully they get some of it right. Although, if it's a self-taught archaeologist... 
and it's 1939, chances are right is going to be like, you know, subject to I mean, time periods. <laughs> weren't they all self-taught back then though? So like, I yeah, I mean, you know, much. you got to kind of take that into consideration. Yeah. The scientific method around archaeology and, and the practices that we use today were only really just starting to be understood mm -hmm. how we want to collect data and what we want to do with it. And obviously there's even techniques and analytical methods we use today that just simply just didn't exist back then. So they didn't know how to collect some stuff. Yeah. But there were people that were interested in this sort of thing and took really detailed notes and drawings and maybe their excavation techniques leave something to be desired, but you know, better than nothing. So anyway, what I wanted to mention this for was because we weren't actually going to talk about this until it came out. But if you go down the line, uh, about halfway down the article, it says, add to the queue, unearthing rare discoveries. And it's basically a list of five other things that if you're interested in historical things, you should check these things out. The first one, it references, again, The Dig, the Netflix movie. And then it says, watch Secrets of the Saquara Tomb, which actually is something we're going to talk about here in a little bit. Mm -hmm. And... I don't know if it's totally up to date because this is a brand new thing that we're going to talk about, but there's a lot of stuff going on in Egypt related to this Saqqara tomb, and there's a documentary coming out on Netflix for it. And then it also says, read Paranesi by Susanna Clark, set in a mysterious world of endless rooms and hallways filled with mutable ocean tides. It's a novel, so it's a fictional novel, but it's based around history and archaeology. And then it says, listen, the only podcast mentioned on here, The Archaeology Show. Ta-ta! I know. I'm not sure where they're actually pulling the description from because I've updated because April is just focused solely on like her PhD research anymore and hasn't been on the show for a long time. And But it still says, hosted by archaeologist Chris Webster and academic April Camp Whitaker. However, like I said, my new pretty much regular co-host is also archaeologist Rachel Roden. And they do mention the things from Cleopatra to last year's discovery of the world's oldest known yarn fragment, which was a... Uh, episode you came in on. Yep, that was a uh, crossover with historical yarns because that's my other passion is yarn yeah. and knitting. So yeah, cool that yeah. that one got to mention. I know, right? Yep. And then they mentioned Time Team, Saxon Burials on the Ridge. Time Team was a, it says 20 seasons. I don't know if in British television that's actually 20 years, but 20 seasons of Time Team. It was on for a long time. Mm -hmm. And this is just one episode that they mentioned from season 11. So check that out. Anyway, pretty cool. We'll link to it in the show notes so you can check it out. But you guys already know what the scoop is because you're listening to this show right now and you know where to get stuff. And, and we have some, I think, some interesting show ideas coming up. Uh, a lot of different things, obviously based around archaeology, but just some themes and little mini series to liven things up a little bit. I still plan on bringing in guests from time to time, but there's so much to talk about and so much to do that we can just keep it going with some of the things that we want to do on this show. So... All right, so the first article we're going to talk about is called Ancient Coffins, Burial Sites, and a Funeral Temple Discovered in Saqqara Necropolis Will Rewrite History. And that was published on CNN Travel by Amy Woodjet? Woodyat? Sorry if I'm saying that name wrong. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? But this is not the only article out there about this site because it's had some recent discoveries and there's a Netflix documentary coming out about it as we mentioned earlier so there's actually a lot of articles out there about this site and this is just one of them that did a good job of just sort of giving an overview of what it is so the premises is there is a temple and this temple belonged to 
the queen, Queen Nerit, who is the wife of King Teti. And I guess the new information is that they did not know that it was Queen Nerit's temple until recently. And there's been tons and tons of artifacts and things discovered here. And now that they have the context of who it belonged to and stuff like that, they're really able to like really get the context of what all this stuff is. Yeah. And I think part of it is, first off, the extreme age of this thing and what was found there, because it's essentially a necropolis, which just means, well, literally means dead city or city of the dead. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's what necropolis means. But I think it was just a burial area for people in this area. And I guess these coffins, funerary masks, funerary, funeral temples were not previously known for this time period. And the things they mm-hmm. were found with are really showing us a little bit more information about the area. Now, one of the reasons this article stuck out for me is I always ping on article titles that say we'll rewrite history because journalists love to say that kind of stuff. Yeah. Archaeologists are stunned. You know, <laughs> can't find out what's going on. Scientists are baffled. Sensationalizing. Yeah. Archaeology, that's pretty typical, I think. <laughs> I know, but they're actually quoting Zahi Hawass, which was, if I'm not mistaken, he was the former Minister of Antiquities for Egypt. He's a little bit controversial because he's just out there saying stuff sometimes, but he's also, regardless of what you think about Zahi Hawass, he's been around Egyptology and Egyptologists and on the forefront of some major discoveries for decades. I mean, he's probably in his 70s, if I had to guess, and he's been doing Egyptology, you know, for his entire life. And, you know, he's obviously Egyptian, lives there. So he was quoted as saying that. And if he's quoted as saying that, again, probably a little bit sensationalist, but probably not completely wrong either. Because, I mean, let's be honest, every discovery we make in archaeology, in any discipline that was either previously unknown or adds more to a current picture quote rewrites history you Mm -hmm. know it doesn't rewrite it in like a really fantastic sensational way like oh my god we have to change the way we live but it does add stuff to it and an archaeologist's job is to rewrite history with every discovery with every with every thing that they do because if we weren't rewriting history what the hell are we doing if we already know all the answers why are we out there yeah for sure and I think what jumped out at me about this site is that there's so much information about like specific humans, like specific actual people that are that is coming out of it. And for me, I've never been super into like the broad generalizations that archaeology can help you make about mm-hmm. communities and civilizations or whatever. Like, yeah, sure, that's great. But I just love the like very specific human life. That's why I love that Pompeii story from last week. I just love to know what people are doing in their individual specific lives. So one of the things that they found is a papyrus, I guess, that is the chapter 17 of the Book of the Dead, Mm -hmm. which is a manuscript that ancient Egyptians used to help guide the deceased through the afterlife. And it's not the first one they found, um, but this one had like the name of the owner on it. And I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. I'll just spell it. It's P-W-K-H-A-E-F. Pukef? I'm, I'm not sure. But I love that it was like the scroll for the person, either for the person it was buried with or written by this person. That's a little unclear. But it's just such a snapshot of daily life and an individual who lived in it. Does it say, is it stamps from the library of? <laughs> right? It's got his name on it. I know, totally. Yeah. Oh, that's. I just think that's really cool. And they haven't finished analyzing that scroll, but that is one of the 
uh, more interesting things that has come out of it is mm-hmm. this very complete version of this chapter from the Book of the Dead. And I guess it was pretty common to have that be buried with with somebody in one of these temples. I think it's cool the sheer size of this thing. So it says some 52 burial shafts, which are between between 10 and 12 meters deep. And 12 meters is like 37, 38 feet, something like that, mm-hmm. probably 39 feet, and contained hundreds of wooden coffins dating back to the New Kingdom period. I don't know the periods in Egypt very well, but the New Kingdom period says discovery marks the first time that coffins dating back 3,000 years have been found in the Saqqara region. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what, we talk about prehistoric and primitive all the time as though they were less than we are. Anything anything before this time is like, how do those people even live? Because they didn't have X, Y, Z. But these people were building pyramids, building cities, and living their lives and doing what they had to do, probably eating at ancient food carts a thousand years before Pompeii thought it was cool. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, doing all these things, and that was 3,000 years ago. It's amazing to me that we have such a, I don't know, such a rich, a rich history um, of cities and things like that and these metropolises and and people doing these things that, you know, are relatively commonplace today, which also leads you to believe that, I mean, they didn't turn up overnight, right? So if this was 3,000 years ago, how long did it take to develop to that point, right? Right. Yeah, I, I like to know that. Like, when they... When people decided to start banding together into bigger and bigger groups and portioning out responsibilities and saying, okay, I'm going to go grow stuff and sell it to you so I don't have to build my house. You can build Mm. that for me and I'll pay you for it out of the things that I grow. And then boom, an economy is born. How does it just grow up into this big thing where you've got this huge necropolis now and you've got these big pyramids and temples and... I don't know. Well, this one is actually pretty interesting. Looking at this article, it says that... These burials that they found in these shafts, I was wondering how they could have ongoing burials if the temple belonged to like one queen that they can date to a certain, you know, specific reign. But what it actually is, is that there was a cult that formed after the death of the pharaoh who was the wife or the husband of of Queen uh, Neret. Mm-hmm. And this cult was alive for a millennia practically and people wanted to be buried near that pharaoh because they worshipped him and so you get this packed these packed in shafts with all these different burials in them because of this desire for these cult members to be buried near the pharaoh so that's part of the reason why they're getting all of that and I don't actually see a citation here for where they're getting that information so I you know, take everything with a slight little bit of skepticism, but that's that's what this article is explaining it as. That is one thing I've noticed when I've looked at articles regarding Egyptology in the past, is that a lot of times, I mean, sure, these are archaeologists, they're scientists, and they are going to publish on these findings in, you know, well-known journals, peer-reviewed journals, things like that. But Egyptology is so on the forefront, even for Egypt's, and everybody's seen pyramids you know there's very few people on this planet that haven't seen a pyramid on a picture or somewhere so it's really 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 well known and these discoveries there's people there when they discover something new there's probably people there that are reporting on it right away you know because i think this stuff was reported initially by the the ministry of antiquities in egypt Mm -hmm. right and then put on this uh facebook page for at least um i'm reading this from cnn but the actual 
news article came from Al Haram, Al Aram, I think, um, A H R A M. And it, it was reported on their Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Like, that's where they're just putting this stuff out. So they're just putting these things out there as they're found. And that's why we can't find good uh, scholarly articles about them with a lot more detail. Those will come out later, like I said, but yeah. it'll be years later mm-hmm. before that stuff comes out. So you just got to kind of take it as it is. Yep. But I think the lesson from this is, you know, definitely take a look at the article when you see it. Because, again, I popped on it because it said, you know, this information will rewrite history. And I was like, will it? Will it rewrite history? And, of course, <laughs> it will. But it won't in the way that the article makes it sound like it will, probably. <laughs> It'll just rewrite, like, a tiny little, like, specific part sure. of history. Yeah. Which is basically what archaeology is supposed to do. So, like, it's basically right. just doing its job. Right. <laughs> All right, so let's take a break and come back and talk about another article that we found in today's news. Back in a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months, or go to zencastr.com and use the code TAS. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 108. And we're talking about some current archaeological news that we found this week. And... Just so you guys know, we're recording this in mid-January of 2021, so if you want to find those articles, hopefully the links still work, but sometimes those links die, so that's why if you're listening to this years in the future. So the next article we are talking about is from Science Alert, sciencealert.com. Again, you can find it in the show notes, the link, but it's titled, The Oldest City in the Americas is an Archaeological Wonder, and it's Under Invasion. And I'm going to butcher this guy's name, but it was written by Carlos Muda. Oh, Mudu, no. Mudu Manduhano. That's probably that pretty DJ? close. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, Manduhano. Manduhano. Yeah. Uh, on 20th of January, 2021. And I mean, do you want to kind of talk about this real quick? Because yeah. it's, it's from an area that you've worked in. So I have worked in Peru. And when I read this article, I had a lot of mixed feelings about it. This site is the Corral site, and it's a little bit north of Lima, uh, near the coast, which is 
kind of an area that I worked in. I worked on a site that was a little closer to the Trujillo area. If you're familiar with the Peru geography, it's it's. I'm a, sure no one is. Well, I'm, it's pretty easy to <laughs> grab a map and look it up, though. Um, it's much further north of Lima, but it's a similar area. And I am familiar with the archaeology of the area. And I didn't I haven't been to this site, even though I've been there a couple times. And it does look like it was a pretty it is a pretty significant site the cradle of civilization in the Americas basically is what they're saying because it's so old. I feel very mixed about this though, because the problem is, is that the site is so large that the local communities have used the pandemic as a way to come in and take the land back and basically plant crops and things on it that they need currently to live. And it sounds like there's definitely some shady stuff going on there. And it wasn't legal, obviously, for them to take it because it is a protected site. But regardless of the fact, they have done that. And they are ruining the site by planting, you know, agriculture on it. But here's where my mixed feelings come in. Because I have worked in Peru and I have worked around these communities in these areas. And they are just so poor. They are so poor. They don't They don't have access to water. Mm-hmm. They don't have access to a lot of food in some ways. And there's a part of me that just sympathizes with the fact that they are less interested in preserving a 5,000-year-old site and more interested in preserving their current family that they need to provide food for right now. So I think that's where my mixed feelings come in. And I had the same feelings about this, too, for the site that I was working on in Peru because there's some looting issues going on. And it turns out that people will loot ancient sites down there to find good examples of pots specifically. Like moche pots are really big on the black market, or they were when I worked down there. And they would loot these sites to find these perfectly preserved pots and then sell them to feed their family. And it's like, I don't know, there's just a part of me that kind of understands needing to do what you have to do to keep yourself alive. And also it's their ancestors, not our white people from North America ancestors. So like, anyway, I have a lot of mixed up feelings about stuff like this. What do you, what do you think? <laughs> I, I've got two big things that make me think about this. My first thing is, what's the rest of the area look like that this area, which I mean, it looks like be a big sprawling site, but mm-hmm. it's also kind of in the middle of nowhere. So why here? You know, why is this like the place where they need to plant crops and be. It's not like they're living in any ancient structures or buildings or anything like that that were already done. It's not like it's incredibly well protected or some other reason to go in there. They're just occupying part or all of the site. Of the I mentioned land. part of it, yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm just trying to think, like, really, is the adjacent land either that bad or, you know, I mean, obviously they wouldn't have a choice unless it's something more political where this land being set aside by the state and saying you can't go on here unless you're tourist. Maybe the people in the area just really aren't too favorable to that. I don't know when maybe. this was designated a site like that. But. Yeah, there could definitely be some political stuff going on there. But yeah. you can see in that picture, though, like it's surrounded by mountains on both sides and the valleys are where you can grow things mm-hmm. on this like central north coast of Peru. The areas that I saw, it was almost all agriculture in between the mountain ranges, basically. Yeah, it actually, they link in the article to the Wikipedia page. And it says in 2009, it was declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So that's been 11, 12 years now. And mm-hmm. in early 2021, so the last three weeks, 
During the COVID-19 pandemic, tensions arose between squatters claiming land rights and archaeologists researching the site as housing construction encroached on the site. So not just, I mean, they're saying they have nowhere else to go because of the pandemic, but it also says not just squatters, but housing construction that has nothing to do with the pandemic. You know, they're, they're building new houses. They could build new houses somewhere else, you know. But, you know, I always go back to, I guess, archaeological sites as well. And you, you also have to ask yourself, well, is this, you save sites to preserve history and to learn from history and to, to gain more information, you know. And if we've gathered all the information we can and the current inhabitants of the land really just have no other options and no other place to go, you got to kind of make some hard decisions. You know, mm-hmm. it would almost be like if Central Park in New York were not a park, it were an archaeological site. It's weird to me that Central Park has not been developed into buildings yet. <laughs> it seems like New Yorkers really want to have that, so they're fighting it. But it is prime real estate. Mm-hmm. It's surrounded by multi-million dollar properties, but they're not building on it because they want it to be there. Mm-hmm. These guys, the local inhabitants, probably descendants, long descendants of people who used to live there, mm-hmm. don't really care about it. Yeah. So... It's kind of like who's who gets to make that call. Yeah, it's it's where this tricky stuff for me comes in. I just get all wrapped up in like who has the right to say that these people can or cannot use the land when the site likely was used by their ancestors and now people who are not ancestors of of the original occupiers of this land mm-hmm. are saying, no, you cannot use it. it right. I kind of wish we could have like a Native American perspective on this, both of us being white. I feel like a Native American perspective might help clarify, but anyway, it, it just feels tricky to me. I wish there was a way that we could both have all of the information from the site and allow people to survive, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And there's no easy answer here. No. Obviously, it's uh, it's really tough. So, I don't know. I think it's a it's a pretty cool site. Uh, it, being called the cradle of civilization is kind of interesting. I, I mean, I guess it's yeah. When they say the Americas too, this is in South America, of course, mm-hmm. and the Americas encompasses North and South America. And it's always interesting, just from an archaeological perspective, that something like this would be considered the oldest like city complex in the Americas because current thoughts, current theories around how people got to South America, there's two different theories around that, two different primary theories. One is they came down from North America and how they got to North America is still, you know, multiple different ways. Nothing's really concrete, but a lot of different ways. And then they just filtered down the land, you know, into South America. But then there's people that think that early, early settlers came over from, not even settlers, just like people lost almost, came from like the Pacific Islands Mm -hmm. and came across from those complexes over to South America directly. So I don't know. I haven't studied up on the research on that to find out where we're actually at with all that and what what the current thinking is. But it is interesting to me that you would go through leaving people along the way, I would imagine, because it takes thousands of years to travel across a landscape like this. Because they're not, they're not traveling just to travel. They're not saying, we're almost to Peru. Mm-hmm. They're just like moving with seasons and animals and migrations. And as you know, populations grow up in one place, they want to move off to a new place. Teenagers are always teenagers. They want to get out of the house, right, and go do their own thing in, a, in, a, in the valley next door. So... You know, that's expansion. People Mm -hmm. are just expanding out and moving. So it takes thousands of years to do that. And if people came to North America, 
10 to 15,000 years plus ago, but we have evidence back 10 to almost 15,000 years, solid evidence, I should say, then, man, it took a long time to get down to Peru and to make a city. Yeah. <laughs> and have it be the first one. So it's no wonder that it's a World Heritage Site because half of the world is represented by this, mm -hmm. you know, with this being the oldest city in the Americas. Yeah, which is true. And there, that is something to consider here is a World Heritage Site doesn't belong just to the people in the area. It belongs to the world. That's why it's designated that way. So yeah. I just hate to see local people who don't even really understand the archaeology importance of it probably kicked out of an area because of something they don't even really understand. Right. Right. So, yeah, again, mixed feelings. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We'll take a look at the article and take a look at the Wikipedia article that's also linked to it that has some really good information. And not only that, but it has some good uh, has some good pictures in it of mm -hmm. the area. Very much desert-like. And the mm -hmm. pyramided, pyramidic temples on there, I mean, they're, they're dirt and, and kind of rounded now a little bit. But it sounds like it would have been a pretty cool place mm -hmm. back in the day. And to have survived the way that it is for 5,000 years is also pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I would wonder, you know, why wasn't this area that's clearly been uninhabited for a long time as far as that original city goes? You know, why didn't people take this land over long time ago, a long time ago, if it was either fertile ground or a good place to do that for? Right. So, you know, why now? But anyway, let's take our final break and come back on the other side and talk about beer. Back in a second. <laughs> Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, our final segment of episode 108. And we are talking about a favorite subject of some archaeologists, beer cans. Beer. I know. <laughs> I feel like we should be drinking beers right now. Uh, We're we probably, not, though. We probably should be. I know. And I'll tell you what, I don't know what archaeology of the future is going to look like with beer because there has just been an explosion in craft beers and stuff like that. Oh, true. But the problem is a lot of that isn't going to last because they're not building them. They're not making them in... Uh, in Containers, containers. that will yeah. last. Yeah, because yeah. they just got labels on them, yeah. like paper labels, right? That'll but these old beer cans... Off. Yeah, these old beer cans we're going to talk about have lithography on them, painting, uh, basically, or lack of a better way to say that, but images on the cans that last through time, unless the can was exposed to sunlight and water and things like that. But if it's just like sitting out in the desert or, or sitting in a place where it's not really going to rust that much, you can really see a lot about the beer can. Mm -hmm. And the reason we're mentioning this is because JSTOR, which is a place that 
academics and and college students go to find articles from a number of different publications. Uh, if you've got access, you can see it. If you've got like a like a university access to JSTOR, but uh, I also found that you can read a hundred articles a month on one of their different things for free. You just got to sign up for it. But anyway, I found an article that linked over to JSTOR, and then I found another article, and that's the one I'm actually linking in the show notes is the Atlas Obscura article. But you can also uh, find this on the actual original article on JSTOR, and it's from 1993. Uh, it was published by uh, David Maxwell, and it was basically just a hobby of his. And he now works at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, and he's got an office there, and and he's an archaeologist, of course, but he collects beer cans, and he's been collecting beer cans for decades now. So, I mean, if you want to read the article, go ahead and read it, but basically, Rachel and I have had extensive experience with beer cans and things like it, mm-hmm. and I think I just wanted to bring this article up to mention a couple things, really why you should leave stuff like this on the landscape because it's really helpful to us, but also why it's helpful to us, what you can tell from them. Yeah. So when you're driving down, you know, a dirt road in the desert and you see some rusty trash on the side of the road, it might look like it is nothing, but actually that is the kind of stuff that we would find and record the information from. And that is what gives us a picture of the historical people that occupied the area and beer cans played a big role in that obviously because Mm -hmm. you know beer (laughs) and uh they often have these really amazing images and text and stuff on them and and the shape of them is datable and the dimensions are datable and even the way that they are put together like the tabs on the sides all very datable and what this guy david maxwell did as he collected thousands and thousands of them over the years, created this huge collection and then was able to write an article basically helping archaeologists to identify and date these things. Yeah, it's a guide to a guide to beer can identification. And so, some of the things on this guide are common to all tin cans, right? Like there's certain tin can manufacturing techniques. There's certain things on labels that you can look at to find the ages of cans and other artifacts and that's what that's how we determine the ages of things like this right mm-hmm. we'll, we'll see like a, a trash dump or something like that or maybe even just a site with a whole lot of trash on it and you look at different things and you say okay so this can dates from 1935 to 1950 based on this thing that's on it this other can dates from 1940 to 1943 because of this thing on it And then, oh, here's a can that, you know, we know from this guide that they only made this one design for a year, which means the entire collection probably dates to that year Mm -hmm. or or really close to it. Because the other things that you found had such a wide range, you find other stuff to zoom in basically on that range and figure it out. And what's particularly interesting about tin can artifacts as far as dating sites goes is that they are like single use and then throw away items Mm -hmm. typically like glass glass was often reused a bunch of times before you got rid of it but tin cans just didn't have the same ability for reuse so when they were tossed they were probably tossed not long after acquiring them with the one exception being if it's a canned good or canned beer it could sit around a while before they Mm -hmm. consume it but probably not more than couple years at the most but probably less than that so basically tin cans can get you a really tight date on the site if you have good information to work with yeah and there's basically i would say 
there's more, but I would say there's probably three primary things that you can use to date a tin can, let alone a beer can. One of them is the labeling. If you can see the labeling, there are certain phrases. One mentioned in the article here that I'm not sure I was 100% aware of. I may have heard it at one point in time, but I'm not really sure, to be honest. But it says, uh, if the can has written on it, internal revenue tax paid, then it dates between June 1st, 1935 and March 30th, 1950. Except if, unless it was used for military use during World War II, then apparently it, it didn't have that on it. But it's stuff like that, like federal government things. Like mm-hmm. there, there could be, you know, recycling uh, returns prohibited or something like that or, mm-hmm. you know, other phrases on there. You know, people that make these things, they don't just put that stuff on there because they enjoy it, right? They put it on there because they're regulated and they have to. Otherwise, they can't sell it. And the minute the government says, you don't have to put this on there anymore, they're going to stop putting it on there (laughs) because they don't want to put it on there. It's like seeing ingredients labels and calorie information on stuff. You you can date pretty much any food item based on that. I don't know what year that was mandated to be on there, but now everything that you buy has that written on it. Yeah. Um, The one... One notable exception sometimes is like beer cans and stuff because it doesn't have to be on the individual items unless they're sold that way. Mm -hmm. They can be on the case. So sometimes that's actually not true anymore. So that's one thing is the labeling. Is there any federal or regulatory type labeling on it? Even if you don't know what the regulatory labeling is, if it doesn't look like it says, you know, from the cool waters of Colorado, like the federal (laughs) government's not going to make you say that. But if it says copyright this, or if it says, you know, made in here, or if it says something, some statement like this, it was probably federally or state mandated. And you Mm -hmm. can find out the time period with which that had to be put on there. Yeah. The other one is the shape or the, Mm -hmm. uh, the, the overall shape of the can. And you might think all cans look the same. And a lot of times they do, but the shape and style of the can, like they were all steel a long time ago. And then at some point they became became partial steel and aluminum, and then they became full aluminum. Yep. And that's just as technology changed. And probably different manufacturers adopted those new techniques at different times. But generally, you can say if a can is steel with an aluminum top on it, then it dates to here, right? Mm -hmm. Or the cone top cans. The cone top cans have a pretty pretty typical date range. Yeah, those are the earlier ones because they got flatter as they got, or they get, as they get newer, they are flatter. Basically. Yeah, basically, <laughs> when they came up with new opening methods, they didn't need the cone and the yeah. and the bottle style lid that was on the cone. Yeah, yeah, the cone was basically like a a glass can. Yeah, I mean, essentially, they were Man. trying to replicate the glass in a can. Do you know what? If a beer company revives the cone top can, I don't care what that beer tastes like. <laughs> I will purchase it and consume it. With so much excitement, and it probably would be my go my go to beer. So, right. for all the beer companies out there, yeah, revive the cone top. Nice. I'm here. I'm a customer, and other archaeologists are too. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> well, when they did when they did finally invent the flat top, this is another way that you can sort of determine the age on these things because the flat top cans had no way to open them early on, so you had to use a church key, yep. which is just a uh, church key, most people today might notice a, know a church key as a way to open a can of oil if you are mm-hmm. ever worked on your car. A lot of you times, know what I know it from? What's that? Say, I was born in the 80s, and I remember my mom opening cans of formula to feed my younger oh, siblings yeah. with the church key. That was yeah. We always had one with a magnet stuck to the refrigerator. Nice. I got a lot of younger siblings, so there was a lot of formula in our house yeah. through the 80s and 90s, so... Yeah, so that's the church key. The one you ratchet up makes a triangular-shaped mm-hmm. hole. You usually make two of them, one on one side, one on the other, so it can drain properly. Mm-hmm. And then they invented pull tabs, uh, which a lot of people probably remember. And even still, like 
the small like V8 cans and stuff come with pull tabs on them. Like oh, yeah. Little foil pull tabs. Yeah, they yeah. do, yeah. But the metal pull tabs were the first ones. And, well, no, it was the foil ones. And then they came with the metal pop tops. Yep. But anyway, the, the foil pull tabs were, oh, you know what? Weren't they just like in size, like the metal pull tab was in size? It was still metal, but it was like etched out. I'm going to have to admit my ignorance on uh, pull tabs right now. I think Jill will correct us. Hopefully she mentions that in the comments. We'll bring <laughs> Jill up later. And I appreciate any corrections, by the way. We don't know everything. We're just having a conversation here. Yeah. So. And I, we're not taking the time to check every single thing we say. So like no, stuff no. might That's be you. wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Anyway, uh, according to the article here, pull tabs were invented in 1962. I couldn't have pulled that number out of my head, but yeah. I knew it was in the 60s. Yep. Yeah. And then, you know, later on, different opening strategies were invented and... When something is invented that makes it easier and allows allows them to sell more things, then pretty much everyone adopts it right away. Mm-hmm. So it's a really good marker for, a, if not an exact date, at least a date range that's pretty tight within mm-hmm. a couple of years. And, you know, I never, until we moved to the West Coast, because there's, we never found a lot of good historics working on the East Coast because the soil's acidic, it's wetter. Cans just, I don't even think I saw a single tin can that was no, old working uh-uh. on the East Coast because yeah. they just degrade into nothing. Yep. And ceramics, you might find ceramics mm-hmm. uh, on, on like a habitation site or something like that. You find ceramics, but a lot of stuff just disappeared. Glass. Yeah, glass. You find yeah. glass. But still, the type of archaeology we were doing and the places we were digging, I feel like we found mostly prehistorics, and I don't remember finding that many historic sites to begin with. Yeah, not too much. But no. then out west, there are so many historic sites mm-hmm. because of all the mining and ranching and, and you know migration across the landscape by different groups of people. It's just people leave trash all over the place because these were single-use items in, for the most part. I mean, sometimes they really found other uses for these things, but for the most part, they were single-use items, so there was just piles of trash. Yep. And... Well, I still don't really like historical sites only because I like stuff that's older. I like I like questions that are older. I like historical sites for their dateability. Because yeah. you can find a prehistoric site with a thousand artifacts on it and not a damn one of them tells you how old it is. Yep. Partly because it's been looted and all the datable stuff is gone. Mm-hmm. But usually with historic sites, even if somebody comes through and takes all the, quote, good stuff, you know, all the things that are complete, because looters like complete things. Mm-hmm. But archaeologists... I mean, while we would love to see some complete things because it'll give us a better picture, we can tell a lot from a fragment. Yep. You know, just a fragment of something. So I guess from that standpoint, I, I grew to like historical sites just a little bit better because of the datability. I just I just really liked being able to come up with a number. I always loved historical sites. But it's, for me, again, that human connection. And yeah, you can really get a picture of who the people were and what they're doing when you can date things super well. So, yeah. Right, right. All right. Well, I think that's it for this week. But as we mentioned, we had some comments on last week's episode. And, you know, uh, as we said, we don't get everything right. There's certain things I just can't remember, can't keep everything in my head. And and we're using these episodes as a somewhat off-the-cuff discussion of the news articles. So we're not doing in-depth research on some of these things like, you know, some other episodes where we would. But one of our members, Jill, and if you haven't checked out the membership for the Archaeology Podcast Network, we've changed the whole thing. If you've heard us talk about it before, there used to be three tiers of membership. Now there's one. I believe it's $7.99 a month is what we're charging for it. And really, it's just to help us pay some of the bills around here. You know, we've got hosting fees, Dropbox fees, editing fees, all kinds of stuff that that really just, it's expensive to, to put together 
you know, 15 to 20 episodes a month across the network for all the different shows that we have. And so one of those ways that we do that is through advertising. Another way is through our membership and it's arcpodnet.com forward slash members. And really the primary thing that you get with that, aside from the good feelings of supporting the archaeology podcast network and bringing archaeology <laughs> education and outreach to the world is membership into our Slack team. And if you don't know what Slack is, it's basically an app you can download, but you can get it online too, that you join in these channels and each channel on our team represents a show on the Archaeology Podcast Network. And ideally the hosts are in there. Not all of our hosts are in there yet, but when we get more activity, they'll come in. But ideally the hosts are in the channels as well. And you can talk to the hosts, talk to me, talk to Tristan, our co-founder, talk to other hosts and talk to other members of the APN. There's about 50 or 60 people in there right now. And a few of them are more active than others. But the more people get in and have conversations, the better it is. But one of our members, Jill, she's been a member for a really long time. She was possibly our first member of a memory that's really sticking in my head. (laughs) I can't remember, but Jill's been with us for a while, a few years now. And she had some comments on two things that I mentioned in the last episode. One of them was about red ochre. I was saying it was organic, and it's not. It, it is iron-based. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely not organic. It's uh, a ferric oxide, clay or earth-based material, according to Jill. And I just kind of wasn't in my right frame of mind. I wasn't thinking about that for some reason. But I think in some cases there are organic elements made into ochre before it's used as like a paint and things like that. So there are some dating techniques we can use on it, but it's the ferric nature of it that gives it its uh, its red color. So not not plant based, not plant based, but doesn't mean it doesn't have plant material in it. And then there's the other thing about the uh, uh, I was kind of making a joke about Pompeii and the rooster sketch and saying that. Maybe there were eggs there and they used a rooster instead of a hen because it was a patriarchal society. <laughs> it was a bad joke. And and Jill wanted to point out in her uh, mission to educate people on how eggs are made, because she, she says she works with, she's had thousands of chickens, right? Thousands of chickens. And she just says that a rooster is not necessary for a hen to lay eggs. The rooster is only necessary to fertilize an egg. So I'd actually like to know more about that. How do hens lay eggs? Just like, do they just always lay eggs? But to fertilize the egg, you need a rooster? So hens are just like growing eggs and spitting them out all the time. Do all birds do that? I'm not really sure how it works exactly, but yeah, the eggs that we eat are not fertilized. So For sure, yeah. That, and they create them without, you know, they, they lay them. So Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, who knows? You learn something new every day. Yep. But I would just like to point out that you can definitely comment on these shows as necessary. Comment wherever you see it. Join the APN and come over to our Slack team and comment there. We've had a really good discussion about this on the Slack team for the archaeology show. And now people are making fun of me on the general channel for getting it wrong about eggs, which I find incredibly enjoyable, <laughs> including Paul from the Architect podcast. He's jumped in on it now, too. So anyway, join us, arcpodnet.com forward slash members. And definitely go check out that CNN article that mentions the archaeology show. That was pretty cool. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Thanks. We'll see you next week. And hopefully soon we're going to have some new episode ideas for you, some different kinds of episodes that we plan on doing. So we'll get those together and we'll see you next time. See ya. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.arcpodnet.com. 
find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden and Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So.